Well, I want to share with you something that uh, in ministry and in life, if, if uh, you kind of don't get this right, you, you won't finish strong. It's one thing to start well and start with a bang, but uh, God wants us to finish strong. And so there's four, four thoughts I want to share with you. Call them the four P's of successful living, if you would. I'm going to give you a bouquet of sweet peas. I want to talk to you about purpose, passion, peace, and play. Number one, it's important to know your purpose. An instrument used for something other than what it was created for is not only ineffective, but it can become damaged. I can pound a nail into a wall with a wrench and probably get the job done, but I'm liable to damage the wrench and I'm probably going to damage the wall as well. A wrench wasn't made to pound nails. I could take this beautiful Takamine guitar and I could dig a hole with it. I could use it as a shovel and uh, I'm not going to be very effective, but I'll eventually get the hole dug, but I'll be exhausted and the guitar is going to be damaged. And you know, that's what's happened to some people. They've never quite discovered their purpose in life. And it's not that they're not committed. It's not that they're not working hard, but they become damaged and worn out in the process, and they've been very, very ineffective. It's so important to find out what God has wired you up to do. I have a friend that is one of the, well, foremost film critics and Christian film producers in the world. In fact, the secular world, when they want a response regarding things that are going on, they go to him much of the time, and that you'll find him quoted in, in some of the major periodicals across our country. And he was in university taking classes. He had a particular major, and um, one day he dropped his duffel bag, and out came a couple of old, like, Super 8 reel-to-reels. And his roommate said, what are those? He said, well, my brother and I, when we were kids, you know, we used to make movies all the time. He said, really? He said, you know what, I could teach you to edit those if you're interested, because his roommate was a, a film major. He said, well, yeah, that'd be great. So they went down to the, the building that housed all of the, the you know, the uh, film classes, and they started editing these things. And the head of the film department walked by and started watching over their shoulder. And he said, this is better than anything that any of my students have produced. Where'd this come from? He said, well, I made those when I was a kid. He said, you're kidding. He said, would you mind if I brought these into the film class and we critiqued them? He said, well, okay, as long as I can come. And uh, the professor allowed him to come, and he said they just, they shredded it. They, you know, they picked it apart. But he said it caused such a buzz and such interaction with people. He had an epiphany. He thought, if, if I can make films that can cause people to think and cause them to talk, and cause them to question, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. And that day, he changed majors and, and headed on a pathway that had to do with what he was wired up to do with his life. And sometimes in life, we have a defining moment like that. You know, it's just sort of a, a, a flash, a sudden revelation. Other times, it comes slowly. Sort of like the, the dawning of the sun. It's incremental and bit by bit, just a, a, a growing sense that you're to move in a particular direction. Should you look with me in John's gospel, the first chapter, if you would? There's a story that most of us are quite familiar with here. They had come to John the Baptist in the wilderness and asked him some questions. And I want to begin in verse 19 of John chapter 1. 
It says, now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. And they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Now, John knew who he was, but he also knew who he wasn't. And it's just as important sometimes to know who you're not as it is to know who you are. Are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Well, who are you? He said, well, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he only got that from time with God and spending time in the Word of God. God revealed that to him, and he found out his purpose and who he was. And I just want to humbly ask you tonight, same question they asked John. Who are you? What do you say about yourself? It's important that you're able to answer that question. Now, I've worked some things out about myself. I, I'm, I'm not a manager, you know, in the sense of, of administrative skills. I'm not a businessman, but I'm a pastor and a teacher. There's some things that God has wired me up to do. Other things, I am terrible at them. And our team knows it. They say, please don't give that to Bayless. He'll lose it. He, if they, don't, they don't give me paperwork very often because if they do, there's a 50-50 chance I'm going to lose it. I just don't do well with paperwork. I don't do well with administration. There's just some things I, I'm, I'm not good at. And so I surround myself with people that are good at those things and I concentrate on the things that God has wired me up to do and the things that he has gifted me to do. You know, the Apostle Paul made this statement in 1 Corinthians 9 and 26, Living Bible. He said, so I run straight to the goal with purpose in every step. It's important to know who you are. You know, in the book of Psalms, it says that God looks from his habitation in heaven on all the inhabitants of the earth. And then it says that he has fashioned their hearts individually. And the very next statement, it says, he observes all their works. So God from heaven looks at everyone. He fashions their hearts individually and he observes their works. Meaning that our work, the, the employment of our life should flow out of the individual wiring of our heart. You see, you're gifted and you're wired up by God to do certain things. Before the foundation of the world, God determined to make you unique. You are gifted. You are wonderful. And you will find satisfaction if you begin to move in those areas that you have been gifted for. Would you look with me in, in the Gospel of John, if you would, in chapter 12. John chapter 12. You know, Jesus, I think, is, is our supreme example in, in all of these things. And we won't turn there, but in Luke chapter 4, and you find it in Mark chapter 1 as well, they came to Jesus, he's, he's praying, and they, they tried to get him to stay there with him because he's been working miracles and teaching. He says, no, I've got to go to other cities and preach the gospel there also. For this purpose, I have been sent. Jesus understood his purpose. The people tried to get him to stay, and he wouldn't. There are people that, that, you know, they've got a good heart. Out of the innocence of their heart, they will try and keep you from your purpose. 
They don't want you to launch out. They may be afraid for your future. Sometimes parents do that with children. You know, they want to hold their children back because they're afraid they'll fail or, you know, afraid that, that they, you know, they might get hurt. And we, our job is to, to put wind in our children's sails. You know, our daughter came to us. We, we've taught our kids to love the world their whole life. And our daughter came to us some years ago and, and she came to me and says, Daddy, said, uh, I found a ministry, this thing called the World Race, and I feel like God wants me to do it. I said, really, tell me about it. She said, well, I'm going to live out of a backpack for a year. I'll carry a little tent with me, and I'm going to spend a month in a different country every month for a full year, and I'm going to live out of a little tent I carry and live out of a backpack. I said, really? <laughs> she said, yep. I said, okay, baby. And she did it, and she went off, and she lived in some very, very dangerous places and went into some of the countries that our own government was advising U.S. citizens to stay out of those nations because some of the conflicts were there, and she's right in the middle of those places. And so my, my little nomadic daughter, my little hippie daughter with her backpack on and a small group of other people lived around the world and worked with prostitutes in one country, worked with handicapped kids in another country. I mean, that they spent a, a month up in... Uh, Catherine, Australia, working with, with aboriginals in a place that, that they had no electricity there. They did every, every kind of thing from building church buildings to street evangelism to rescuing prostitutes. And she came back changed. It would have been really easy as her father to say, well, no, 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 well, let's wait a minute. We need to think about this. We don't want you going out there, baby. It's not safe out in the world. But that's not my job as a parent. My job is to send her forth into the destiny that God has created for her. And here in John 12, Jesus says this in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. Now, if you read on, he's talking about going to the cross here, speaking about his purpose. Earlier in his ministry, he declared that his purpose was to go into different cities and preach the gospel. Now he says, I've come to a new hour or a new season of purpose, and it has to do with going to the cross. And there are different seasons of purpose for all of us. I'm in a bit of a transition time myself. I, I, I've sensed that I'm walking into a new season. My overall purpose is the same, but it's, it's, there's going to be a new dimension and a new season, and it's going to require change on my part. Ecclesiastes 3 and 1 says, to everything there's a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. You might say, well, how, how can I know my purpose? Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. Spend some time with a shepherd. Let me just give you a, a couple of thoughts that might help you. I call these the four F's of self-discovery. First one is, where do you find fulfillment? I think God wires us up to do things that we find satisfaction in. It is not God's will for you to work at a job your whole life that you hate you hate going there, you hate it when you're there, you hate the drive home, but hey, it pays good. Well, yeah, you may die at age 80, but you stop living at age 25. I think we find fulfillment and satisfaction in the things that God wants us to do. And if there's not, I, I think you need to, to take a look at what you're doing. Secondly, where have you been fruitful? Just naturally fruitful. Every one of us has 
an, an intuitive nature about us. There's some certain things that we can do almost intuitively. Some of you here, you can take anything apart and put it back together. And you think everybody should be able to do that. And the rest of us just stand here with our mouths hanging open. How did you do that? And your answer is, well, I don't know. Can everybody do this? No. But you have an intuitive gift mechanically. Other people have an intuitive gift when it comes to, you know, particular types of ministry or whatever in life. What is it that you've been fruitful at? You know, there are some people can walk into a room full of screaming children and all the children become quiet. They just are fruitful. They, they can, can just mesmerize the kids. The rest of us, we can walk into a room full of quiet children and they all begin to cry. <laughs> where have you been fruitful? Number three, where's your fire? What makes you come alive? Find out what that is and go do it. The world needs people that have come alive. Where's your fire? What are you passionate about? I was at a broadcaster's convention and I had one of our, our tech guys with me and I was meeting with a friend there and he had some guys with him from, you know, his media ministry. And, you know, we we're there and one of the guys, he's standing there in the group, but he's completely disengaged. You know, he looks like Lazarus that has not yet been raised from the dead. <laughs> totally, totally disengaged, totally bored until someone mentioned the word computer. Suddenly Lazarus was raised from the dead. He got animated, started moving his arms, and started using words that I did not understand. He's one of these techno-barbarians that was made for this generation and just had an intuitive gift when it came to technology. Where's your fire? And then finally, what makes you furious? Most generally, God gives you a gift to fix the things that make you mad. Some of you, you see pictures of orphans and you cry and you get angry, and you think somebody should do something about that. Yes, you should. Others you see injustice or inequality, and it makes you so angry. Others, it's racial prejudice. Generally, God gives us a gift to fix the things that make us angry. Paul came into the great city of Corinth. He saw the whole city given over to idols. And the Bible says his spirit was provoked in him. Literally, his spirit became angered. And the next word, it says, therefore, he went into the marketplace and he taught. He did something to fix that which made him angry. So the first question is purpose. You know, you need to pursue your purpose. And secondly is have passion. Have passion for whatever you do. Determine to live, not just exist. Ecclesiastes 9 and 10 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Whether you're a preacher, a writer, a teacher, a singer, an organizer, do it with passion. And I have a, a dear friend that... Uh, is a, is a very successful businessman. He has three different stores that, that he runs and, and in a very hard economy in Southern California where when a lot of people in his industry have shut down, he's flourished. Very successful. And when I first got to know him, we had an interesting experience. I found out he liked to hunt, so I invited him to go hunting. And he and I took our bows out into wilderness area and we're hunting wild pigs. And I can tell he's really nervous around me. 
And, you know, some people do get nervous around their pastor. I used to be the same way. Went to a big church, you know, for a while, a few years after I was saved. And, man, if the pastor would come, I'd find myself breaking out into a cold sweat. And I know I'm going to say my name backwards or something. It was just, I got nervous around him. Anyway, I could tell he's feeling nervous. And so I said, look, Dave, put your bow down. I'll tell you what, I'm going to race you to the top of the hill. He said, what? I said, you heard me. I'm going to race you to the top of the hill, you chicken. He said, no, he put his bow down, and at the top of the hill, there was an old straggly barbed wire fence and a, 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 an abandoned fire road up there. And uh, I said, now, I'm going to count to three. When I get to three, we go. He said, okay. So we got ready. I said, one, two, and then I pushed him into a sticker bush. <laughs> and he went flying into this sticker bush, and I started running up the hill, and I'm laughing at him, and he gets this huge grin on his face, pulls himself out of the sticker bush. I mean, he's sliced up and bleeding. It was pretty funny. And he starts running up the hill after me, and he's gaining on me. We get to the top of the hill, and he dives through the barbed wire fence in order to beat me. And then he was really cut up, and I thought, okay, I understand something about this man. He's highly competitive, and he's very passionate about what he does. And he carries that same passion into his business, and it's why he is as successful as he is. God wants us to be passionate. I have a friend, Philip Baker. Some of you may know Philip. He had uh, brain surgery a few years back. He was a brilliant pastor, a brilliant mind, and a few things didn't go right. And I was actually there, you know, in the hospital and, and spent quite a bit of time after the, the surgery with him. And the doctors didn't think he'd get better. He's incrementally getting better. So he's already defied what they said was possible. He's not back at the point where he can you know, preach yet or lead a completely normal life, but he's on his way. And uh, Philip had a real gift for gathering ministers and sort of thinking outside of the box. And he would, uh, he had a number of different meetings that he would do. And he had this one where he would gather, you know, pastors from some of the larger churches um, in the nation. And he made friends with the leading atheist, the most well-known atheist in Australia. The guy was very vocal and he was on the media a lot, and everybody in the country knew him, a brilliant mind, but a complete atheist. Philip befriended the guy. And then he invited him. He's having this gathering with all the pastors of the largest churches, and Philip invites the atheist to be the guest speaker. And the guy said, well, that's, that's the most interesting invitation I've ever received. I, I think I'll accept that. And so it was quite quiet and a little uncomfortable. He stands up, you know, to, to address everyone. And his first statement was, I feel like a lion in a den of Daniels. <laughs> and then he began to talk about the subject he was given, why he would not attend church and why many Australians would not attend church. And he said, the reason I don't attend church and many other Australians is this. I see no passion in the pulpit. He said, if what you say is true, if Jesus truly is the Son of God, if He truly is the only way into a relationship with God, and to reject Him means to spend an eternity separated from God in torment, he said, then it must be the highest blasphemy before God to not be absolutely passionate about what you preach. He said, and we see no passion in the pulpit. He had their attention. 
The world is not going to come here some preacher who looks like he's half asleep and doesn't even believe what he's talking about himself. People are attracted to passion. They want to see someone burning with a fiery zeal for what they do, whatever it is. Life is a gift that should be enjoyed and celebrated. Laugh hard, give generously, sing your lungs out, dance like nobody's watching. Don't sleepwalk through life determined to live. Man, our time here on the planet is short. You know, I, I think boring Christian shouldn't be in the same sentence together. Like, yeah, except Jesus, be boring, lifeless like me. Oh, we used to rage, we used to party, but now I'm a Christian. We don't do anything anymore. Oh, I want to be just like you. No, I don't think so. Look with me at John chapter 2, if you would. Again, Jesus is our supreme example. John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Passion for your house has eaten me up. When is the last time you were eaten up with passion for something? When's the last time you were eaten up with zeal in a positive way? friend of mine taking his family to Colorado to go skiing. He and his wife came down early. They're sitting at the lodge and they're watching the skiers and the snowboarders up there drinking their hot coffee or their latte or whatever. And his wife says, will you look at that? And they looked up and through the trees, there's two maniacs coming down through the trees at breakneck speed where there's not even a trail down there. And she goes, those guys are going to get killed. And he goes, yeah, what a couple of idiots. And they keep watching them and he had a sudden revelation. Those are our sons. <laughs> Said the first thing I did, Bayless, I went and bought him a couple helmets. Well, the thing was, you know, when he told me the story, I thought, yeah, and they're just like you. Because he's that way about everything he does. Turns everything into a contest wants to see who can text the fastest, who can run up the stairs the fastest, who can hold their breath the longest, who can do the most push-ups. And he's passionate in the pulpit. He's passionate about everything that he does. His kids are just like him. I think we need to pursue passion. There's a man in D.L. Moody's meeting. His neighbor said to him, do you come? Because you believe the stuff this guy's preaching. He said, no, I come because he believes what he's preaching. Or number three, we need to pursue peace. Number one, peace with God, and then the peace of God. Psalm 34 and 14 says, seek peace and pursue it. A peace with God only comes through Jesus Christ. The great naturalist and writer Henry David Thoreau, upon his deathbed, had a friend talk to him about his soul. He said, Henry... Have you made your peace with God? Gave a clever answer. Said, I never knew that God and I were at odds. Clever answer, but not a correct one. 
Jesus Christ has made peace with God through the blood of his cross. When we were still enemies of God, due to wicked works, Jesus Christ died for us. And peace with God comes through the blood of Jesus Christ only. But once we experience peace with God, we can know the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. You know the verses in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing. Do not worry about anything. Not your marriage, not your finances, not your future, not your children. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Did you know there's not even a promise there that God will answer your request? It's certainly implied, and it's taught elsewhere in the Bible. But there is a promise there. That if you make your request to God, if you talk to God about your problems, if you talk to God about the things that are tempting you to worry, He will give you peace. Peace for your heart and peace for your mind. Jesus said, don't take an anxious thought for tomorrow. You know, we uh, had an air conditioning unit in a previous home that we lived in, and it was always blowing a fuse. There would be a power surge, and the fuse would blow. And it's almost like God has put a 24-hour fuse in our heart. Jesus said, don't take an anxious thought for tomorrow. But if you worry about tomorrow today, you're putting a 48-hour load on a 24-hour fuse, and something's going to blow. Some people put a much heavier load than that. They don't just worry about tomorrow. They worry about the next day and the next week. They worry about next month and they worry about next year. And it erupts in their body. Their health breaks down. It erupts in their marriage. It erupts in some other way. What the mind can't contain, it will impose upon the body. That's why the Bible says to cast all of your care upon Him, for He cares for you. And thank God that He does. I was uh, preaching in Trondheim, Norway many years ago and I had a free afternoon and my driver said, what would you like to do, Bayless? I said, well, let's go hiking. He said, seriously, I said, there's got to be some nice lakes here. Let's go hiking. So we went up to this lake and started hiking around. There was a bunch of nude swimmers. I tried not to look, but I didn't succeed. And uh, we spent the day hiking and towards the afternoon, you know, we're both skipping rocks on the lake. And uh, sat out on a rock, and there was these really strange-looking ants, and I started spitting on them. And he looked at me and says, Bayless, you're not like any other guest speaker we've ever had. <laughs> he said, most of the guys that come, they all want to go shopping, and they're continually on their mobile phone. They're calling back to see how big the offering was, and this is going on and that's going on. And I've noticed two days you haven't called your office once. I said, well, when I go away, they only call me if it's an emergency, and I never call them. And I was just enjoying it. I don't worry about things. I got a call once. I'm coming back from overseas. I get on the plane. We're starting to taxi. They've told us to turn off our mobile devices, but I decided to check because I see I've got a, a, a voicemail. So I turn it on. It's our son, Spencer. Hey, Dad. Um, Mom uh, passed out, and she fell and hit her head cracked it open pretty good and we'd take her to emergency and they they sewed her head up and 
She's back home now, but she's sitting on the edge of the bed and she's saying really bizarre things. Okay, see you, Dad. Bye. <laughs> that was the message. So I turned off my phone, prayed a quick prayer, and watched a movie. What else can I do? Why worry about it? It's not going to change anything. I slept most of the flight back. Don't take your problems home with you. I read about a couple that decided they were going to, rather than stew over things, they were going to turn things over to God. And they would sit down at their kitchen table and if they had an issue, they would write it out and they would fold that paper and they would pray and commit it into God's hands. And then they'd put this paper bag uh, on the, the top of the, the back of the kitchen door and they'd written God on it with a big black marker. And after they'd pray over it and turn it over to God, they'd get a chair and put it up there and they'd drop that little thing in the bag, symbolizing God now has it and we don't have it anymore. But they made a deal. If we ever start to worry about it again, we've taken it back from God and we have to get on the kitchen chair and go fish that particular request out and take it back. And I think a lot of us, if we were honest, we'd have to admit we'd be spending a lot of time standing on that kitchen chair fishing things out of the bag. Listen, unless the Lord build a house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. He is big enough to care for you. Keep your cares cast upon him. Pursue peace. Let me read something to you. This is a quote from Dr. E. Stanley Jones. I'm inwardly fashioned for faith, not for fear. Fear is not my native land. Faith is. I am so made that worry and anxiety are sand in the machinery of life. Faith is the oil. I live better by faith and confidence than by fear, doubt, and anxiety. In anxiety and worry, my being is gasping for breath. These are not my native air, but faith and confidence I breathe freely. These are my native air. The final P is play. You need to take time to play. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, God gives us richly all things to enjoy. You need to take time to enjoy the things that God richly gives you. You need to have a hobby. You need to have an outlet. Um, I had the, the privilege to be friends with Oral Roberts. I had met him at a meeting and actually he and his wife and Evelyn were there and, and he pulled me aside and asked to talk to me and he told me that he and Evelyn watched the broadcast all the time and uh, he invited me to go golfing and so we became friends and he didn't live far from us and so he and I would golf quite often. I'd ring him up and say, you got time for nine holes or he'd ring me up and, and I'd take my son and we'd go play golf and we were out one day golfing and, and I said, Oral, I said, I, I've got to ask you, you know, I'm young in ministry. You've had all of these decades in ministry. What's the most important advice you could give me? He said, well, Bayless, you got a pretty nice golf swing. He said, I would suggest you get lessons. And whatever it costs you, you need to join a country club. And then he said, golf is the only thing that's kept me alive. And I thought, it's really not what I wanted to hear. So I just sort of filed it away, and I was a bit disappointed. And as maybe three months later, I was doing a, a conference for the apostolic denomination in Australia, and they found out I liked to golf, and so they sent me out with Leo Hart. He was one of the uh, sort of heroes in the movement. He was uh, 
you know, one of the, the early preachers there and, and uh, really made a mark, um, you know, through his ministry. And so we're, we're walking and he's telling me the story as we're walking down a fairway that in the early days of the ministry, they considered it sinful to be involved in any sport. So the boys weren't allowed to play sports at all. And they couldn't wear shorts and, you know, the girls couldn't cut their hair and there was no mixed bathing and all of that kind of stuff. And, and uh, he said he was the premier preacher in the denomination but his health started to break down. So he went to the doctor and the doctor said, well, Leo, your health is breaking down, but there's not anything wrong with you per se and that you don't have a disease. He said, let me ask you a question, Leo. What's your hobby? He said, oh, I read the Bible. He said, no, 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 no. What's your hobby? What do you do for, you know, a release valve? He says, I read the Bible. That's it. He says, well, it's good that you read the Bible, but I'm telling you, if you don't get a hobby, you will go to an early grave because you're carrying all this stress and pressure and you need something as a relief, release valve. So he said, Bayless, to the chagrin of the denomination, I took up golf. He said it was absolutely scandalous, but I did it anyway. And then he turns around, we're standing in the middle of a fairway, looks him in the eye, says, Bayless, golf is the only thing that's kept me alive. I'm thinking, I heard that just recently. And then I began to connect the dots, and I thought back to when I was in Bible school. And they were bringing a missionary in to talk, from us, to, talk to us from Borneo. And I thought, awesome, the ends of the earth. A missionary from Borneo. Come on, lay the lash on my soul. Make me feel like I'm not saved. Talk to me about the unsaved peoples of the world. And I'm, I mean, I'm ready for him. I'm literally sitting on the front row on the edge of my seat thinking, thank God. I want to hear. And he gets up and... He says, well, I want to tell you, you need to have a hobby. <laughs> he said, mine is beachcombing. I collect shells. And he began to talk about some of the issues that you face in ministry and how you need a release valve. And I'm sitting on the front, front row, you know, I'm studying for ministry, and I'm thinking, oh, please, can you, can you please get us a real missionary? And I just switched him off and didn't listen to anything else he said. But then I remembered back when Leo Hart spun on me and said, golf's the only thing that's kept me alive. Now, I've got a couple of hobbies. One of them is golf. The other one is free diving. I uh, spent a lot of time in the ocean with a spear gun killing God's finer creatures. <laughs> I call it saltwater therapy. And uh, does my soul good. Not a luxury, a necessity. I'm in this thing for the long haul. And I, I have known preachers, some of the, the, the greatest men of God that have come along in a generation. I've had the privilege to know many of them. Princes in the pulpit. In all honesty, I speak their names with reverence, but I've also known their children. Some of these men that were princes in the pulpit were dysfunctional as fathers dysfunctional as husbands, didn't know how to be a friend. All they knew how to do was preach. Never had time to take their boy out to play catch or out for a game of football, for a walk on the beach or to teach him how to fish or start a fire. And their kids paid a terrible price that they never should have had to pay. 
And I think we need to develop our craft. If we're called to preach, we need to develop it, be the best that we can be, but we need to be balanced people. I have a life outside of the pulpit. And I think God wants us to, again, He gives us richly all things to enjoy. Sometimes you just need to get away to recuperate. I think I'm going to have to do that after this conference. <laughs> this is 11th or 12th session that I've spoken in. I'm a mite tired. I think I need to go kill something in the ocean. <laughs> in Mark 6.31, Jesus said to the disciples, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Sometimes we need to come aside by ourselves and rest a while. Switch off the mobile devices. You know, it's, it's, the mobile phone is a blessing and a curse. Some of you, you take it to the toilet with you. <laughs> like you can be reached anywhere doing anything. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but you know who you are. I have a friend who was, a, was the vice president of Skype. And uh, prior to that, he'd been an executive at Nokia, and, and he's working on a company of his own right now, but a hyper-techie guy. Sometimes he can't be reached for days. He fasts all of his gadgets and just spends time with his girls and with his wife. They're out on their boat, or he's hiking, or just being quiet with God. That's a good thing to do. Take time to play. What is it that fuels your tank emotionally? And my wife, I can't get her out on the golf course. Every once in a blue moon, she'll come out with me, but not very often. Man, she likes to go shopping. <laughs> Somebody stole her purse recently, all of her credit cards. I didn't report it to the police. No. The thief was spending less money than she was, so. No. Just teasing. But I make sure that my wife gets her time as well. She gets out with her girlfriend. She and I do stuff together. You know, we like to go to cafes and, and you know, find a place that's got some nice dark chocolate and some good tea and we'll go hang out or you know, we, you know, go see a movie or whatever, but I make sure that she gets time as well, because it's not just about me. You know, it's about making sure that she gets her tank full as well. And I think God wants us, you know, to, to live balanced lives. And, and honestly, I think God smiles on me when I preach, but I think he smiles on me when I'm 10 meters under the surface of the ocean, going through kelp stringers looking for fish. I think God is just as delighted in me when I'm doing that as he is, you know, when I'm, when I'm preaching the gospel. He's created us to enjoy those things. So know your purpose, have passion, pursue peace, and take time to play.